the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we hit our three of our daily three-hour tour in our quest to distill, understand, and educate about the modern conservative movement. I bring you three pieces of good news. One is the new issue of the Claremont Review of Books is out. Two, there is a fantastic essay in there called Why Harry V. Jaffa Matters by Glenn Elmers. And three, it is a privilege to welcome back to the show the same, Glenn Elmers. Glenn Elmers is a senior fellow of the Claremont Institute. He is a visiting research uh, scholar at Hillsdale and the author of a book coming out this September. So very looking forward to it. I've already pre-ordered it. I would urge you to do the same. The Soul of Politics, Harry V. Jaffa and the Fight for America. Glenn, how are you, man? Hello, Seth, my old friend. I'm always delighted to be on your wonderful show. It's uh, it's great to have you, and you are a, a good old friend. Um, Glenn, um, I don't know how to start this. There's so much you wrote in the current issue of the Claremont Review of Books about Harry uh, Jaffa, whom this audience is familiar with, uh, well familiar with. But let me start it this way, if I might. Let me start our conversation this way. In one of his books in 1976 or so, around the Bicentennial, he opened it saying something like, in 1776, this country was, so to speak, nothing promising to become everything. Today, in 1976, having become everything, it promises or looks to become nothing. He may have been a little early in that diagnosis, but boy, as you point out, he gave us, he foresaw all that we are facing today, didn't he? Yeah, he sure did. Um, you know, he understood what America was about uh, at a very deep level. And so he was able to perceive in a very um, sort of prescient way uh, how things were going wrong all the way back in, in the 70s and 80s. And he traced this really to the forgetfulness and rejection of the principles of the founding, which he thought were the secret to America's greatness and goodness. And that rejection and that forgetfulness have now proceeded uh, at an alarming rate, and, and now we're in pretty much uh, a severe crisis, as you and your listeners well know. It is a crisis. Uh, it's a crisis that um, Harry would have called it, as Leo Strauss, his teacher would have called it a crisis of the West, I believe. Right. It, you, if I'm right, do you want to tell me what that concept implies, what that means a little bit? Tell me in our audience. Yeah. Right. So uh, Jaffa's teacher, Leo Strauss, uh, was fond of this term, crisis of the West, by which he meant, and for Jaffa, it was really, in a way, encapsulated in the, in the crisis of America, because America, in a way, represented the highest aspiration uh, of Western civilization, the Western project, the Enlightenment. Uh, individualism, religious liberty, uh, decent politics, constitutionalism, natural rights, the rule of law, all of these principles that have represented the greatness of Western civilization really are uh, embodied in a way, in, in, some, in many ways, for the first time in America in 1776 and and really uh, find their fullest expression in some way there. And to the degree that America 
is rejecting all of that now, as, as it seems to be. It's a crisis, really, of all of Western civilization, uh, because, you know, much of, of Western Europe and, and other parts of the Western world are are engaged in the same sort of uh, revolution against these ideas of individual natural rights in favor of group rights, uh, rejection of limited government, rejection of the rule of law and equality before the law. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's a crisis of Western civilization, but it's really embodied in, in the crisis of America, which is Joppa's focus. Uh, when you say he took the study of the founding seriously, and he studied it seriously and, 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 and taught it as a, as a serious thing, uh, one has to include Abraham Lincoln and his understanding in the founding of that. And it's kind of an odd thing to say uh, sometimes when we step back a little bit or talk about this school of thought, Glenn, uh, to new audiences, because a lot of them would say, well, wait a minute. I mean, you know, I've, I, we've all studied America. There's plenty of historians and scholars. My gosh, there were plenty of Lincoln books before 1955. <laughs> uh, there is something, though, different by what you mean, isn't there? Right. So there were a lot of Lincoln books, and certainly there has always been um, an appreciation, a patriotic appreciation for the Founding Fathers and for Lincoln's achievement. But Jaffa approached this, so Jaffa was trained as a classical political philosopher, and his teacher really, in a way for the first time, brought back in the 20th century the serious study of classical political philosophy, especially the Greeks, Plato and Aristotle, not as ancient curiosities, but as sources of real wisdom, the idea that there's trans-historical truth that we can get out of ancient philosophy, uh, out of the Bible, out of, uh, you know, beyond the cultural relativism that had dominated uh, intellectuals then and now. Joppa said, no, uh, the founding is not just a historical curiosity. The ideas of the Declaration of Independence are true. That was that was an astounding thing to say in the 1950s, and it's even astounding in some ways today. And what, and, and what Lincoln brought to that was a really very deep philosophical understanding that he then applied to the, to the crisis of the Civil War. And Joffa really drew out in a way, and it's hard to believe now, but really drew out in a way for the first time the full depth of Lincoln's philosophical statesmanship. That's right, and, and well put, Glenn. And in that, Harry Jaffa was a little bit different from, a lot different in some respects, but a little bit different in others from other conservatives who were prominent in the 1960s, as you point out in your essay, as many of the audience know. He was uh, he was part of Barry Goldwater's Brain Trust in 1964, wrote his convention speech, uh, was a Goldwater, uh, well, I said Brain Trust, I was going to say advisor. But Harry was very committed to something, and I think he got it in some parts, perhaps from his ethnic background, but I think more so from his studying of Lincoln, and that was a sincere, strong, articulate, vociferous case for civil rights. You know, it's no accident to me that so many of Jaffa's students are so committed to pushing back against things like critical race theory in the 1619 Project, 
uh, students of Harry Jaffa. It's no accident to me that so many of them are committed to the colorblind philosophy of Martin Luther King. They learned it from King and from Jaffa. There weren't a lot of conservatives sidling up. In fact, to that point, in fact, I believe he was one of the few in the Goldwater orbit that supported the Civil Rights Act of 64. I think. I think I'm right about that. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I'm sure he would have come to regret the, what, the way it's been interpreted. I think he said as much, but in any event, sorry. Well, you took the words yeah. out of my mouth, right? Okay. So, so Jaffa was a very strong believer in, in the ideal or the aspiration of the civil rights movement, which was colorblind, equal treatment before the law, that every individual has the same equal rights regardless of color, uh, based on our, our natural rights uh, as equal human beings. But the way that that law and the, the larger civil rights movement became perverted uh, and actually moved in a way almost the opposite of that, and, and today we're you know we're in a position now where where the left and liberals explicitly reject colorblindness, explicitly reject equality before the law and individual natural rights in favor of group rights and you know this obsession with race and ethnicity, and so you know uh, yeah, Jaffa definitely. Uh, because he derived his whole understanding, really, of America from uh, the natural rights philosophy of the Declaration, and that was necessarily colorblind equality. Um, and so, you know, uh, but, but as you say, uh, to the degree that the civil rights movement then departed from that, he was very disappointed. Right. But I, uh, and, and of course, I, I think he, he'd obviously revisit uh, as he has revisited and written multiple things on what what the Civil Rights Act became when it came to counting by race and and of yeah. course racial preferences and the like, uh, Glenn. Um, one of the interesting things about what we're going through, and it dawned on me somewhere around March of last year, um, that when you hear things from the left about America and you hear the indictment that this country was founded in slavery, this country's original sin was slavery, the founders were uh, ab- created this country to help protect and promote and preserve slavery. You know, it dawned on me, this is something Harry pointed out, was not just a view of the left, but it was an interesting part of a neo-Confederate right as well. In other words, there was a lot of this kind of scholarship in the past, it just happened to reside in the majority opinion of Dred Scott and Plessy versus Ferguson and in the throats of people like Jefferson Davis and uh, Alexander Stevens. Ironically, the left is on the side of the Confederacy, it turns out. Can we pick up on that when we come back from this commercial break? Absolutely. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Glenn Elmers. His upcoming book, which... You want to um, pre-order, of course, coming out in September, The Soul of Politics, Harry V. Jaffa, and the Fight for America. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Glenn Elmers is our guest. He has a great essay in the brand spanking new issue of the Claremont Review of Books, why Harry V. Jaffa matters. It's a it's 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 a uh, prequel in, of sorts to his book coming out in September, The Soul of Politics: Harry V. Jaffa and the Fight for America. Glenn, the indictment against America from the progressive left, which you used to find similarly in much of the um, 
not much, but uh, uh, pockets and parts of the American right as well, less and less so, uh, and more and more so just in the progressive left. It It's a side I've been trying to explain. It's a scholarship of the American founding that would not be unfamiliar to some Americans in history. It would not be unfamiliar to the majority uh, Supreme Court in Plessy versus Ferguson, Roger B. Taney and the majority in Dred Scott, Alexander Stevens and the leaders of the Confederacy. This was their view of the founding. There was another view. Take it away. Right. right. So it's, it's, it's sort of odd. Uh, people like John C. Calhoun, who was Lincoln's great antagonist uh, in the years leading up to the Civil War, and uh, a lot of sort of right-wing nostalgia, um, said, yeah, America was racist, and they liked that idea, right? They liked the idea that, that uh, whites were the dominant class and, uh, and, and that blacks were enslaved, and they thought that that was right and proper, and they defended that. And you still had some lingering defense of this uh, in the American conservative movement in the latter part of the 20th century. Not too many people still defend that explicitly. But now the tables have turned, um, and it's the left that embraces it. Uh, and, and all they've done is just sort of, uh, flipped the script, uh, <laughs> and reverse the colors, so to speak. Uh, and so the 1619 project is just a kind of perverted, uh, reverse image of the old neo-Confederate analysis of the founding, uh, this obsession with racial, racial distinction and they, uh, and, and group rights and identity politics and all of this. And both of these extremes, both of these perversions, uh, misunderstand the true principles uh, of the founding that Joplin articulated, building on Lincoln and Jefferson, which is the equal natural rights of all individuals. And it's not as if it's just Jaffa, Lincoln, and Jefferson. As I like to point out, right. again, you're the expert, you'll correct me where I err here. If you listen to the progressive left today, to them it seems like America until 1865 or so was made up of two basic types of person, slave owners and slaves. In other words, that's that's all they talk about. The Confederacy was America to them, ignoring the fact that that side was in a war. It lost. It was the minority side. There was another side. It was called the Union. It was more of America. It was more states. It was more people. It was more soldiers. And when they tell us about wanting to just give history accurately, they're wiping out that entire understanding of America, which is to wipe out everything. Right, right. Of course, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, this was, uh, you know, the but I think it's deliberate. Let me just let me I'm sorry. Let me yeah, just connect yeah, it to this. I sure. think it's deliberate yeah. because I think it is part of the process. If if America had a good element to it or America was good, then, of course, their entire case falls apart. That's why they want a memory hold the union. That's my thesis. When they say we want to teach about all of America, good and bad, they're lying. They can't tell me the good they want to teach. Right. Right. And of course, that's I mean, they're they're being dishonest in several ways because, you know, uh, uh, the Joplin Lincoln understanding of America was really the standard thing that was taught in most schools up until 50 years ago or so. And it did not, contrary to what the 1619 Project and Hannah Jones and other people say, it did not ignore slavery. Uh, it, it explained very clearly, you know, the defects and the, and the, and the warts and 
um, what the Civil War is really about. And so it's really not true that this story was, was suppressed. What they're trying to do is, is reinterpret uh, the meaning of America along a radically different grounds, which, again, as we were just saying a moment, is the mirror image of the old state holding right. south. That's right. <laughs> which is a great irony. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the real story, uh, which is, uh, despite uh, the, the, the horrible injustice of slavery, we fought a war over that, yeah. and we overcame that. I mean, there's a wonderful line that Joppa has, which if I could just quote real quick, about you know, this idea that the founder should have immediately abolished slavery, even though there was no practical way to do it. I mean, right. Joppa explains this over and over again. Um, and he has this wonderful line. He says, look, slavery was the universal practice everywhere in the world. It was, you know, as old as civilization. And so in 1776, you know, everyone in the world basically accepted the fact that slavery was legal in every colony. And so he has this wonderful line where he says, it's not amazing that a nation of slaveholders upon founding a new nation failed to immediately abolish slavery. What's amazing and even miraculous is that they founded a new nation on the basis of human equality and thus made the abolition of slavery a moral and political necessity. That is beautiful, and and, and, and yeah. that should be the beginning of every political science course. Unfortunately, it would not be, but that would be that would be how I would start any course on understanding American history. Of course, that's a that's a beautiful sentence. Let me ask you this, Glenn: given the, given the trajectory we've traveled as a country, not since 1776, but even 1976, and I'm mm-hmm. thinking about what our 250th anniversary will be like. You're old enough to remember our 200th anniversary. It was a beautiful yeah. celebration. I'm very worried about what's coming up in 2026, I have to tell you. But was Harry, would you say Harry was an optimist or a pessimist? I know it's a kind, it's he, kind of a tough question. He was, um, uh, so let's say, he, he was a little of both. Let me emphasize the optimistic part. Um, he was an optimist because he thought that human nature uh, cannot be uh, conquered or changed by science or, uh, or uh, political utopianism. Um, one of the great insights of classical political philosophy is that nature is older than any tradition. <laughs> nature is older than any tyranny. Uh, nature is older than any political movement, and she will always have her way. And there is a human nature, and any politics any political regime that fails to conform to human nature will ultimately fail. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, there won't be great suffering along the way, but he was an optimist in the sense that he really did believe that there is trans-historical truth. Yeah, I was going to say fixed truths. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, uh, that there is a human nature, and we can understand that. And so um, it's... it's, uh, And he also believed, by the way, in what he called the metaphysical freedom of the human mind, Mm. which meant... That so he he liked to say that despair is both an error and a sin, mm. and partly what he meant by that is because human beings always have moral choice. Our choices may be very difficult sometimes, but we always have the possibilities of human choice. History is not determined. He, he rejected the whole idea of historical determinism, and because there is human nature, because we can access the truth, because we always have moral choice, there's always the possibility for success, however slim. And so in that sense, he was always an optimist. Now, in the short term, <laughs> things can look very bad, and sometimes uh, the only thing left to do is just, you know, 
go down guns blazing flying. <laughs> but 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 even that is a kind of optimism. Can, can I hold you on that in a sense? Yeah, uh, sure. I, I want to pick up on that and get yeah. your sense of where we are today and your sense of optimism and pessimism as a scholar of all this stuff. I have to hit a quick commercial break, but we'll be right back with Glenn Elmers. Can we get out of this soup? He is the author of The Soul of Politics, Harry V. Jaffa and the Fight for America. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Glenn Elmers, the author of The Soul of Politics, Harry V. Jaffa and the Fight for America, is our guest. He has a essay in the new issue, just brand new issue of the Claremont Review of Books, Why Harry V. Jaffa Matters. <coughs> to me, Harry Jaffa is uh, one of the most, if not, in fact, to me, the most important modern American conservative thinker and scholar. I think Glenn Elmers thinks the same. We were talking about the condition of America and pessimism and optimism. As a good student uh, of history, Glenn, of political science, of Harry Jaffa, where do you fall on the pessimist, optimistic side of things right now? Um, I think our situation is extremely dire. Um, uh, you know, I'm not sure how, how or whether or in what way the republic is going to survive long term. It may have to undergo some kind of transformation, uh, some kind of rebuilding. I don't really use the word conservative anymore because I think there's very little left among our major institutions to conserve. And so Jaffa always reminded people that America was a country founded in a revolution, and we have revolution in our in our political blood, so to speak. And I think that's a useful thing to keep in mind. Uh, we're facing now a time of great change, but if we remind ourselves that uh, America is a revolutionary nation, and if we think of ourselves as revolutionaries fighting for a good cause, the way our founding fathers did, uh, standing up for our rights and willing to... to uh, put up our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. It's a pretty dramatic thing, but, um, you know, our forefathers did it, and we may be called upon to do that as well, uh, as dramatic as that sounds. And uh, sometimes that becomes necessary in life, and I think that there's a lot of Americans who are prepared to do that if it comes to that. And so I'm an optimist in that sense. Glenn, let's talk about uh, that tension in the scholarship of Harry Jaffa and in the scholarship of our founding, because there is obviously um, no question about it that that sense, that sensibility, that the, those words, uh, that thinking. But Harry was also at the same time very, um, very motivated to teach the lessons of the Lyceum Address, right? Mm-hmm. and sure. the notion of prudence. And how do you square those two those two paternalisms of Dr. Jaffa's? Right, so... Uh, By the way, you can start with the Declaration of Independence, which talks of the prudence, obviously, as well, right, uh, in these right. things. That's my prudence starting point on this stuff. Stuff. Right. Right. right, right. So prudence, so in a way, my book is all about prudence. Okay, uh, good. In some sense. Good. Uh, it was an absolutely central concept for Jaffa, and the people don't really understand what prudence means, which is a kind of a particular thing in the history of political philosophy. It goes back to Aristotle. It's the virtue of statesmanship. It's the political uh, virtue. It's, it's practical wisdom. Um, it's not something boring or calculated or cautious. Prudence can sometimes be very bold, but it's a very important idea, and I, I talk a lot about it in the book. But, right, so when I say revolution, I don't mean recklessness, right? Mm-hmm. A revolution undertaken rashly or thoughtlessly 
without due consideration, that's no good either. Right. Um, so we have to be, <laughs> it sounds like an oxymoron, but we have to be prudent revolutionary. Well, that's um, right. And the way I square it is uh, the revolutionary mindset uh, 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 with, with separate conditions for the modus operandi, um, assuming that we can affect the modus operandi, and I think we have to exhaust those possibilities. I have to tell you, one of the things I've been saying for years when people say, what more can I do, is I say run for school board. I have been delighted, delighted to see these uh, school board meetings where parents have woken up. It's almost reminiscent of something like the Tea Party, if, if you will, uh, uprisings yeah. around 29, 2010, right? Uh, parents actually waking up to the junk thought their children have been fed and that gives me a sense not only of um, relief that that's still there, but optimism. You know, I sometimes wonder about whether the common sense of the American people is still there. And when I see some of these uh, meetings at these school boards, particularly close to you, by the way, in Loudoun County, right? Uh, it gives me a sense of hope and optimism, I have to tell you. By the way, not, 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 not a few of these great articulate representatives of – classical understanding and teaching being from uh, minority parents who are in the parlance of our times, persons of color. Right, right, right. So, yeah, maybe one thing to mention about revolution so that people don't get the wrong ideas, it's really connected to the idea of being radical. And in a way, our times are forcing us to be radical. And all that means is the word radical comes from the Latin word for root. Root, right, beginning. Uh, mm -hmm. our, our politics are now have exposed a lot of hollowness, a lot of BS, a lot of fakeness in our political institutions, and it's uncovered a lot. Now people are seeing, in a way, political reality. We're seeing what the left really is, uh, what its ambitions are, uh, what it really wants, and it's, a scared. it's scary in some ways to see that. And so we're, in a way, getting to the roots of things, and that's really what radical means. And it's in that sense that I mean being revolutionary, meaning getting to the roots of what really matters, and, and, and that's the situation we're in now. Uh, I love it, Glenn, and I just can't wait for your book. This is so great, and uh, your, your, your essay is just a wonderful, wonderful enticement for your book coming out this September. What book? The Soul of Politics, Harry v. Jaffa and the Fight for America. You can pre-order it now, as I have, and uh, if you're unsure, go to the Claremont Review of Books and read his uh, Glenn Elmer's uh, essay in the most recent essay. Why uh, in the most recent edition? Why Harry V. Jaffa matters. He saw our house divided, dividing once again. Glenn, uh, Godspeed. Uh, we'll certainly talk in September, but I hope long before that. Thank you so much, Seth. It's been great. I appreciate it. You too, brother. Godspeed. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. For all your air conditioning needs, I want you to t check out Cool Touch Air Conditioning. For your plumbing needs, too, it's Cool Touch Air Conditioning, Plumbing and Heating. But we don't need to talk about heating right now. What we do need to talk about is great customer service and air conditioning and a great product. Cool Touch Air Conditioning for all repairs, inspections, installations, new units. They have a special new unit right now that operates as if it were a light with a dimmer switch. So it prevents those continual surges that are huge drags on your power and power bill to keep the air conditioning temperature where you want it. 
It's a great, great new system where they're offering for a limited time a $2,000 rebate. But for that system or any other system you may want or they may help you with, or repairs or inspections or anything else, or plumbing, I want you to call Cool Touch Air Conditioning, Heating, and Plumbing. It's the company I use. It's the company my friends use. It's the company my family uses. Just great people doing great work. Fabulous customer service. Reach my friends at Cool Touch at 623-734-1932. That's 623-734-1932 or at cooltouchac.com. And as usual with Cool Touch, kick back and relax. They'll keep you cool. I, I got so many things wrong in one sports analogy that I just feel like I have to confess it rather than elide it or memory hole it because I'm not a Democrat. I tried to make a point about getting back to basics. I think it was yesterday or the day before yesterday. And I quoted the basketball coach, Jim Wooten of Stanford, for saying, gentlemen, this is a ball. This is a ball. And I said ball knowing that it couldn't have been a basketball because that's not the original quote. And as my producer was quick to point out, there was no basketball coach at Stanford named Jim Wooten or, to his knowledge, anywhere else. There was a John Wooden at UCLA who was legendary. And there was a Vince Lombardi who coached the Green Bay Packers who's perhaps one of his most famous quotes is, gentlemen, this is a football. So I just got everything wrong and I thought I needed to confess it. Now, evidently, uh, there was someone yesterday who wanted to call and correct me on a biblical verse, which I'm open to as well. I, I don't know what it was, but I want to make sure we get that right. I'm thinking very much about the interview earlier in the show that we did with Eli Crane, candidate for Congress, and how he said, just electing me isn't going to fix this country. That's right. But you elect five or six of these guys, and you can make a big damned difference. I'll tell you someone I'm watching. Someone was on Fox News the other day. Let me play the Fox News clip. Young uh, first-term member of the House of Representatives from Florida, Byron Donalds, uh, for what it's worth, I'll just mention, because it's important given the topic of discussion you're going to hear, for what it's worth, Byron Donalds uh, is also um, an African-American uh, gentleman. All right. It starts with a line, I think, from maybe AOC and perhaps Ayanna Presley, but you'll, you'll pick up what we're doing here. And then Byron Donalds, please. Why don't Republicans want their kids to know the tradition of anti-racism in the United States? Why don't Republicans want us to learn how to not be racist? Why don't Republicans want us want kids to know how to not be racist? Yeah, I'll give you a shot at that. I, I guess in part it's because they're first graders and they're, they're taught <laughs> That's to this program <laughs> to, to see skin color <laughs> as opposed to overlooking it. Well, You're I'm going to be that. very... I'm going to be very clear on this. I have three sons. They play with children who are from all races and creeds. Um, kids don't see color. I mean, they superficially see it, but they don't judge people based upon the color of their skin. We are th almost three generations removed from the civil rights movement right now in America. Our country is not still in 1955, definitely not in 1855. We are a far better country than we are today. People are growing up in our country believing in the goodness of people. 
What AOC and the others want to do is have them be steeped in this ideology where you are still trapped by, the, frankly, the scars of our nation. And we are not trapped by that. What we should always be teaching is tolerance. Have people be tolerant of one another. Love your fellow man. Of course, that's what we should be doing. Everybody should be teaching that to our kids. But to trap them in this ideology that America can never get past the, 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 the sins of, seg- of slavery and segregation is just flat out wrong. It does not look at America today. It actually keeps your mind focused in the past in order to divide Americans. And that's why I completely disagree with it. I will say, though. We should always teach our history. We should be fully teaching our history. Let's not pull punches. Let's not take away names and labels. Let's not talk about which groups supported what when, because we can be very descriptive about that in our history. We should fully teach that. But what we should not do is put a divisive mindset in the minds of our children when we go about and teach our history. Be objective about it. Don't be subjective. That's what I want. That's what most people want. Sir, thanks for coming on today. I would also add this is what happens when you pass trillion-dollar bills. You don't know what's what's in those bills. And it may happen again within months because they're considering a $3.5 to $4.1 trillion bill next. I don't know what's in $4 trillion, but it's a lot. Sir, thank you for your time. I'll tell you that right now. Mm. Byron Donalds, thanks. Byron Donalds, watch this man. Watch this man. Watch men like him. Watch men like Eli Crane. It's a good way to teach children. Aristotle taught that. You teach by example and pointing. There's a man. Follow him. We could use a little more of that right now. Be right back. My producer does like Rush. And whenever I give him bumper music, he I say, that's not so bad, is it? He'll say, I like Rush. But you always, you always get a little jiggy when Eddie Money comes on. You're okay with Eddie Money. That's... That's good classic hard-driving rock, right? Spent a lot of time talking about Harry Jaffa today, and the point is because we're talking about America today and perhaps its best political philosopher in understanding her. I'll close with one of my favorite quotes from my old teacher. The salvation of the West must come if it is to come from the United States. The salvation of the United States, if it is to come, must come from the Republican Party. And the salvation of the Republican Party, if it is to come, must come from the conservative movement within it. And the salvation of the conservative movement, if it is to come, must come from the renewal and reaffirmation of the principles of the American founding embodied in the Declaration of Independence. And if such a renewal is to come, it must come by the rejection of the ideas that have dominated American politics for the last half century. At this point, we would say half century plus, half century plus. We don't have scholars like that anymore, but we do have their books and their writings and their words. And we have, of course, this great access to something called a brain and reason. If conservatism stands for anything, it stands for the principle that you should use both. We try and do that here every day. With a little candor, excuse me, with as much candor, intelligence, and goodwill as we can muster. And a little humility. I'm Seth Leibson. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. And class dismissed.